everybody. Welcome to the Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly podcast. Today, the topic is long COVID. My name is Dr. Enya Danes, and interviewing with me today is Dr. Lindsay Houchin Wallach. Hello. Uh, we are both members of the ATS Web Committee and research physiotherapists from Leicester Hospitals in the UK. And today we are interviewing Dr. Marla Beauchamp, who's a physical therapist and assistant professor at McMaster University. And she's currently researching post-COVID functional recovery in Canada. So Marla, if you want to say hello. Hello, nice and to be here. And we also have Eric Scheerholtz, who's a patient recovering from COVID again in Canada alongside Marla. So firstly, I want to thank you both for joining us today. And I think if we start with you, Eric, do you want to start by telling us about your initial experiences of COVID? Um, it started basically with just a fever on uh, March 12th of last year. Um, it was controllable with Advils and Tylenols. Um, by the following Tuesday, I uh, was having more difficulty controlling the fever. Um, I had gone to my family doctor. He put me on antibiotics at that time, also ordered a chest x-ray, which came back as supposedly clear. Um, we had requested a COVID test from public health, but they refused it because we hadn't been out of the country for more than the two week period. And at that time they weren't believing in community spread. Um, by the 19th, the following Thursday, uh, fever had gotten up to 103, 104 degrees, couldn't control it anymore with ice packs or medicine, um, became lethargic, um, couldn't keep food down anymore. Finally, at that point, my wife said, that's it, we're going to emergency. So I went to the local emergency department where I was admitted. Um, the next day, I guess two days later, they um, admitted me to the ICU unit because they couldn't uh, determine what the cause was at that time. Um, I received two nasal swabs at that time, both proved negative. Um, so they still didn't know what was happening. Um, I was packed with ice to control the fever. They were giving me antibiotics to try to get it controlled. Nothing was working. Uh, I was eventually put on a ventilator at that time because uh, my oxygen levels, as the doctor put it in emergency, if she hadn't brought me in that night, I probably wouldn't have woken up in the morning. My oxygen levels had dropped that low. Um, countless tests were done for every virus possible. All came back negative. If it wasn't for the one ICU doctor who insisted they were COVID-like symptoms. And he um, asked my wife whether he could perform a bronchoscopy. Um, from what I understand, it was one of the first times this had ever been done or the first time in North America. And uh, that eventually proved that it was COVID. Um, by that time, my lungs were packed with, as they called it, COVID fluff. Um, and that's, uh, and my blood level, oxygen levels had dropped um, very low. Um, on the ventilator for 36 days. Uh, during that time, I was put into an induced coma and paralyzed because my body was fighting the ventilator. Um, I was given rendesivir and the doctor also proned me. Um, I believe both were being proven successful in other countries at that time. So, um, and they proved very helpful in me fighting the virus as well. My oxygen levels improved greatly with the proning. One, one day of proning, I believe it was. Um, then from there uh, to they eventually, um, once they had the COVID fought, they weaned me off the uh, ventilator um, by putting me on a tracheotomy. 
they're doing a tracheotomy. At this point, they did two more COVID tests and it was found that the COVID was removed at that time. Um, as they put it, I was uh, recovered from COVID, which I find very funny at this point in time because mm -hmm. uh, I don't think any of us have recovered from COVID. Um, during that time though, I lost 45 pounds, mostly muscle mass. Um, I couldn't swallow properly. Um, so I had to have feeding tubes put in, uh, eventually a stomach feeding tube put in so that I could gain the cal the weight back and the muscle back. Um, I lost the ability to walk, um, daily functions, brushing your teeth, anything like that. I couldn't do for myself, couldn't move in bed. That all had to be regained. Um, so I spent a total of 45 days in the ICU department. Uh, before I was eventually moved to a, a ward room to rehab, to begin my rehab. Uh, several weeks later, I was strong enough to be sent to a local rehabilitation hospital, Freeport. And uh, I spent about two and a half weeks there getting stronger, more or less pushing myself to the point where they had to release me, um, getting enough calories in my body that they couldn't say no. So on June 2nd, I was released. So it was 75 days total in hospital. Um, probably the worst that was 75 days without visitors. You're on your own. There's nobody there to help you. No support, very limited mental support as well. I found in the hospitals. Um, yeah, so I don't think it, 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 it harmed me physically, but I think it was a mental aspect that really took its toll on me. That's kind of a, a quick rundown of how it went. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. That's, you know, really sad experience you know for you personally um but Marla I'm wondering whether you can comment is that a fairly typical pattern for patients admitted at that time and do you feel that you know as time's gone on in subsequent sort of waves of the disease have treatments um diagnoses and things like mental health support improved in Canada would you say I mean I think Eric certainly had a prolonged uh, ICU stay and hospital stay. Um, it, it's not, it was, it's not completely uncommon, um, but I think now as we know more, Eric was one of the first, you know, it was very early on. So I think, you know, as we went on and we know more about how to treat um, COVID in the acute stages, I think we got a little bit better. Um, in uh, in terms of the hospitals involved in, in our work, you know, we're seeing quite a range of length of stay and of people, some, you know, certainly some people do need ICU. Um, and then there are still um, a majority of patients that just go on to the ward um, and are hospitalized that way. But what we're seeing across the board is that uh, patients are being discharged with a number of lingering symptoms. Um, so like Eric was saying, in terms of mental health support, I mean, isolation, it's, patients are still in isolation and we're, we're in wave three right now in Canada and things are, are not looking very good. Um, and so there's still that, there's still isolation and there's not enough staff um, to man the beds. In, in acute care right now. So I, I imagine the situation actually might even be worse for patients that are that are getting COVID right now. Okay.
Do we want to go back a bit on symptoms, Enya? Yeah, I was going to ask Eric. So you said um, you kind of alluded to this. You were recovered from COVID, as they as they put it, but you felt you feel quite differently about that. So do you want to tell us a bit about how you feel now? Then, so it's all almost a year later, or is a year later. How are your symptoms now? Um, there's still prolonged symptoms, uh, fatigue. Um, I'm back. I've been back at work for a couple months, but um, you know by 2 30 3 o'clock in the afternoon i'm mentally and physically worn out and that never used to be um i still have some memory loss trouble focusing at times um when i first came out of the hospital i had a lot of what they called the brain fog like streets that i should know i couldn't remember names people's names i couldn't remember that type of stuff a lot of that is cleared but there's still those moments where you know even putting these answers together i I'd be writing something for get my train of thought. Um, I have high blood pressure that I didn't have before. Um, I did almost stroke a couple times. Uh, so there was concerns with my heart as well during that period. Um, I have joints that feel like I've got arthritis that I'm 15 years older than what I am today. Uh, what I eat and how I eat because of the swallowing still it's not a hundred percent. I'm happy I can eat again. That's for sure. But it's not a hundred percent. Even now with me talking, you can probably see I'm kind of getting winded. Um, I have to take a little extra breath, you know, mm-hmm. walking up steps, that type of thing still. So there's still those long-term effects. Um, mentally, I think I've gotten a lot stronger, but there's still that fear with everything going on that, am I going to get it again? Am I prone to this? Um, and have you um accessed any sort of sources of support during the time that you you know you're recovering from covid yeah i i did speak to a therapist uh, several times about it and just to kind of you know i don't think i'm so bad right now there was times when i kind of became with it enough to know that hey i can't walk I may never be able to eat again. The, the unknowns, what is going to happen? What is my future? Um, you know, do we need to move out of a two-story house because I can't get up the stairs anymore? All those things went through your mind. And there was a period where there was one day in the hospital where, <clears throat> excuse me. It's okay. Don't worry. I said to my wife, maybe it would have been better if I hadn't made it. It's had an impact on your whole whole yeah. life, family life, oh, relationships, yeah. everything, yeah. But you know what? I'm glad I did make it through and mm. here we are today. So let's try to help others, I guess. Yeah. And am I right in thinking, Marla, that there's no um, sort of specific post-COVID rehabilitation in your area at the moment? Is that right? That's correct. Uh, we, we are starting to see... Uh, pop-ups of long COVID clinics, post-COVID clinics in a few areas, um, but there's not many and they're still in the very, very beginning stages. So it's really unfortunate because I think people, a lot of people like Eric would have benefited from a multidisciplinary rehabilitation program um, much earlier on after discharge would have been probably really helpful. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, 
even our pulmonary rehabilitation programs, a lot of those programs have been, um, you know, operating at limited capacity or have switched to virtual, um, entirely virtual. And so, and wait lists for those programs are high to begin with. So, so they can't naturally, mm-hmm. you know, move into those sorts of programs. Right. So I think, unfortunately, this is one of those things where we weren't really prepared for the long-term impact. Um, and I think we're just starting to understand that, you know, a lot of patients are, people that survive this illness are going to need support over, over the, at least the first year and, and, and maybe longer. So I hope that, I hope that as more and more research comes out that we can mobilize and think about systems, putting systems in place so that we have those supports. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Marla, so you're obviously researching uh, quite a lot into this area. So have you any results that kind of related to what Eric was saying about his symptoms? What, what have you found mm-hmm. in the trials you've been doing? Right, so we're, we're conducting a study on, um, in which Eric is, is, has been very kindly a part of, um, a study on hospitalization, on uh, recovery after hospitalization for COVID-19. So we started very early on in the pandemic, a registry that we used to, and it's actually in collaboration with the World Health Organization, ISORIC platform. Um, and so we basically collect all detailed hospital admission data on all patients that are admitted to hospitals in all COVID cohorting hospitals in our region. So we've got seven hospitals participating in the registry. And, uh, and we started that very early on in the pandemic just to inform local planning and, and so we can get real-time data to help with um, decisions around clinical care and understand how, you know, ge- there are a lot of geographical variations in, in COVID and how it's um, in the clinical presentation as well. So we, we began that very early on, a, a large team of, um, of investigators and a lot of clinicians were involved in that. And then, you know, we started thinking very early on about should we, should we be following patients afterwards? And so we were lucky enough to have um, a lot of support to get going. And so we began, we began a longitudinal cohort study that we sort of attached to the registry. So any patient, uh, any eligible patient from the registry was uh, c- approached and contacted to see if they would wa- want to stay um, involved in the study over the, over the year. And we have three, six, nine and 12 month follow-up and we're tracking things like mobility, um, mental health um, and uh, physical function and, and, and even lung function. And so we're doing that over a year following discharge. And so we began that study, I think um, officially began in June uh, and and tried to get caught up. We also we also caught up with the first wave of participants and uh, enrolled people that had already been discharged in our study at the closest available time point. Um, so it's it's been it's been great to have the support of all the hospitals, all the team members, and the patients that have been willing to participate and, and share their time with us. And so we do have data up to nine months now. Um, we have 130 people enrolled in the cohort study and um, 
our data, you know, even at six and nine months, and this is still preliminary data, but it is showing that, you know, around 30, 30, anywhere from 30 to 40% of patients are still reporting symptoms like fatigue, like Eric was, was reporting, and shortness of breath up to nine months after discharge from hospital. So that's a quite a significant proportion of, of, of patients that are having, still having these lingering symptoms. And how do you think you might sort of use those results to, you know, improve the health of your local residents, first of all, but then also to the wider population? Um, what does it mean? Well, we're trying to get results. We've, we've been using the results to, we've been sharing them with our hospital partners as they try and consider how they might support people post-COVID and programs are underway and in development. Um, so, so we've definitely been using them regionally. Um, and then, you know, we've, we're trying to share the results forums like this. Um, you know, we, we did a presentation for the Canadian uh, Respiratory Conference a little while ago. Um, and we're, there's talk about developing a national guideline statement about rehabilitation post-COVID-19. And so we're hoping that these results can help inform that. Um, and we're planning, we're actually working right now with our, with our preliminary data to, to see if we can actually put out a, a paper with some early results that might, might help support the need for, for rehab, for, post -COVID, for rehabilitation post-COVID-19. And Eric, uh, kind of same question to you. How do you think these results might help people like you who are still feeling symptoms? What would you like the results to do? For people like well, I hope it leads to um, <clears throat> maybe some rehabilitation services for the patients. Once I was released from the hospital, there was nothing. There was no outpatient services being offered at that time. So I've had to use, um, I do chiropractor, I do massage therapist, physiotherapist and that, but that's all on my own money or my, what my benefits can afford. Once that's done, it, it's a pretty high cost to use those services once or twice a week to get to the point where you feel you're healthy enough to, to not go anymore. Um, I think the mental health side of things is very important. I, I think we need to have um, some mental th health therapists there for people, um, whether they've had COVID or not. I mean, even the people that are living with people with COVID. Um, my wife went through probably more than what I did. I mean, physically, yes, I, I took the brunt, but mentally, I didn't know what was going on for the month and a half. Um, so I, I just think, I don't think our public health system and our family doctors know enough about it. And, and that's not a fault to them. That's just, there's not enough known about this disease right now. And uh, I just don't think they know enough to, to work with you on it. When I, when I mentioned my family doctor, things that I'm feeling and, and seeing, I almost feel like it's just, you, you know, you're just, making that up or, you know, I, that's the feeling I get that I'm, it, the, he's not believing me at that time because they don't know any different. Yeah. And, and building Eric on what you said, you know, just, I think it's important for people to know you're not, you're not alone. I mean, in, in this study already, we've had, I'm looking here right now at, at rates of um, post-traumatic stress disorder. We, we measured that using the impact of event scale and, you know, at three months, 50% of our participants had scores consistent with high, high PTSD. 
uh, 26% at six months and 29% at, at nine months still. So, mm -hmm. so certainly there is a need for mental health support and, and that it's not, you know, and, and I think it needs to be recognized more widely and, and hopefully our results will help, will help to do that. Absolutely. Marla, mm -hmm. have you found in your data any differences between um, those who are on ICU compared to those on the general wards? And mm -hmm. also, does your study include people who weren't hospitalized with COVID, but who still may have, you know, ongoing symptoms? Mm -hmm. We haven't looked um, yet specifically at the, we haven't done those sub-analyses yet because our numbers are not quite there, Twenty about 25% of people in our study were in the ICU. Um, our, the average length of stay in our study was, was 13 days. So, so as I, you know, you were on the higher end, Eric, mm. um, of people in our, that have been enrolled in the study. Um, so we have, we have yet to look at that specifically, although I imagine it will certainly have an effect based on everything we know about recovery from other critical illnesses. Um, so we certainly expect that. Um, in terms of the second part of your question. That was about community patients. So patients who mm. didn't, you know, weren't unwell enough right. to be admitted, but still have problems. Right. So our study is really enrolling only uh, hospitalized patients that have that laboratory confirmed um, uh, COVID-19 diagnosis, but we do, um, I am involved in some other work with the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging. Um, and, and in that, uh, they, they did a COVID, they introduced a COVID module as part of their um, platform. It's a 20 year study on, on aging with follow-ups every three years. And in that, um, in that um, and, and some of those, in some preliminary analyses I've been involved with, with the CLSA, we have, shown also a persistence of symptoms in people that had COVID-19 but were not hospitalized. So, and, and the numbers are actually not that dissimilar to what we've seen in our hospitalized cohort. So, um, you know, patients that were not hospitalized with COVID-19 are certainly still um, struggling with long-term effects. I think what's most pronounced in some of our work on, on patients that were hospitalized is that if we look at, um, we do have reports of how they were functioning pre-morbid. So we ask participants, you know, what they were, what, what when they entered the study, how they were doing prior to getting sick. And um, if we compare, um, if we compare to those levels, even even at six and nine months, we're you know we're still seeing that about there's around forty percent of people that still have these deficits in their mobility and in their cognition um, and their sort of applied cognition scores um, at six and nine months. And that's, that's, you know, those are things that we can do something about. So um, yeah. I'm off on a bit of a tangent. No, that's okay. So sorry about that. <laughs> Was that the impact study then that you were talking about just no, no, that that would be that was the hot the 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 courage um, registry functional recovery study, which is which is the one that is looking at uh, recovery after COVID nineteen okay. after hospitalization for COVID nineteen. 
I don't know if you want to talk a bit about the impact study. I know it's slightly different, but that's looking at um, the effects mm. of things like social isolation on the older adults. Is that right? Exactly. Yes. Um, so the impact study is looking at the impact of the pandemic in general on uh, community dwelling older adults living in the community. And it's a uh, longitudinal telesurvey where we're uh, following uh, participants every three months throughout the, the pandemic. Um, and it's a random sample of, of older adults living in the community. And certainly, you know, we are seeing some effects of, um, there are a substantial proportion of people that are reporting high distress um, from, from the pandemic and the, and the restrictions in place. And uh, notably in our data, there's a, a, I'm trying to recall exactly the number, um, but I think there was a, about a 30% reduction in physical activity among older adults and then uh, a high proportion of people with, with results that would sort of put them in the category of having severe mobility limitation. Um, and so, you know, we're starting to think about how, to, how coming out of this pandemic, what kind of effect that's gonna have on people frail people living in the community that have been isolated and um, staying at home and not moving much. Um, so I think we're, we're going to experience almost, you know, another wave of effects after we come out of this. Um, and a lot of those, a lot of the older adults too in that study are reporting that they're, um, you know, fearful to access care. Um, and they've had a lot of appointments and, and surgeries and uh, things like that canceled. So that, that, that's the, the impact study. Hmm. Like a post-COVID world, we're going to be dealing with people like Eric who still have functional limitations and all the mental health issues that come with that. And then another group of people that maybe haven't had COVID but are still dealing with other functional limitations due to inactivity and again, mental health problems from isolation and lockdown and things so yeah mm -hmm. we're gonna be busy i think we're going to be busy <laughs> i think rehabilitation is is going to be needed more than ever before mm -hmm. absolutely it's just kind of trying to balance the you know the post-covid patients coming through and our traditional patients um and mm -hmm. the demand for services it'll be interesting um I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Marla, um, in terms of moving forward, like how might these services be commissioned, for instance, in future in mm -hmm. Canada specifically? I'd, I'd like us to, I'd like to see us use our sort of existing pulmonary rehab platforms and expand those to include patients post-COVID. Um, I think that there's a lot that can be learned through, you know, modifying our our pulmonary rehabilitation programs. Um, but I think we'll need to be innovative because capacity is strained. Um, and we'll have to we'll have to think about, you know, doing things vir like virtual rehab, mm -hmm. especially right now. Um, there's no, you know, right now we're really trying to limit in-person contact across the board in Canada um, because we are we are in lockdown again um, at the moment. And uh, the healthcare system is very, very strained. So I think we'll have to look at, you know, virtual and remote rehabilitation um, 
strategies, but I think we could, we can, we have the, the knowledge and the infrastructure in place with our existing pulmonary rehab programs if we were able to um, increase capacity with those programs um, and, and add more resources that we could, we, we could use that um, to reach people like Eric and, and other, other patients that are now, you know, hospitalized now, um, especially now that we're dealing with the new variants and more, even more severe disease potentially. We don't know what impact that's going to have on the recovery of patients. So, and what about the vaccine rollout in Canada? How's that progressing, or is it not? <laughs> Do you want to comment, Eric? Um, slowly, um, a lot of confusion, I think, and how the government's handling it, and who who is eligible to get it, and when they get it, um, who's essential, who's not essential. There's so many questions. We, we, I mean. I'd love to see everybody get it that wants it and, and right away. But and I realize you have to kind of roll it out, but I think there was different ways of doing it. Um, you know, I mean, I, I consider myself a high risk, but I wasn't considered high risk to get the vaccine, but I'm prone to it apparently. And that's the other thing. I think one of the things I don't understand why the government isn't allowing people that had it and were hospitalized to have the testing done to see if they, do have antibodies. Um, if I want to do that, I have to go pay for it on my own, on my own dollars. So I think that would have helped a lot too, uh, ease a lot of minds. Uh, yeah, uh, hopefully have... there's more vaccines available shortly and we can start getting it out there quicker. Um, they've opened it up to younger ages now, which we're seeing that that was the way to do it. People are flooding to the, the vaccine uh, centers now. Um, I think we hit a, a point where people at that certain age that we were allowing to get it uh, were the ones that I think didn't want to get it or didn't believe in this disease. Um, mm. And it kind of held things up a little bit. Yeah, there was a bit, there was a bit of a stall and, and now there's mm -hmm. it's, things have been opened up to um, yeah. some younger, younger people. It's, it has been a little bit, unfortunately, as Eric says, it's been, it's been a little yeah. disorganized and slow and, um, I don't think that we, you know, I think the consensus is we maybe didn't stay in lockdown long enough after the holidays um, and, and then the vaccine rollout was slower than anticipated and, um, and then with the new variants of concern, um, it just sort of uh, escalated and now here we are. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's unfortunate. We, we were, I think we were all hoping to be in a better place this yeah. spring. Mm. I've got a little, a little bit of a loaded question for you both. So we can all agree that rehab is going to become really important in the coming months or years. So if you were to design a program now without any restrictions, what would be your ideal rehabilitation for people recovering from COVID? Without restrictions? Yeah. In an ideal mm. world, what would you like? All the money I, in the world. <laughs> all the money in the world. I'll leave that one for Marla. <laughs> yeah, all the money in the world. Oh my goodness. Uh, that would be exciting. I think then we would, you know, we would have send, uh, we would have in, within the community, we would have in, some in-person um, programs, right within, you know, community centers, uh, YMCAs, parts like partnering with them and being out there and in places that are accessible 
to patients. Um, and I, cause I do think, you know, there's so much value to, to doing things in person. And I think we've all recon recognized that mm -hmm. um, with COVID and Zoom and all of that um, fatigue that's happening right now. But I think, um, yeah, you know, a, a modified pulmonary rehabilitation program offered in the community where uh, people can come and access and, and, and it would be, ideally it would be self-referral. Self if you're still having persistent symptoms, um, after COVID-19, then you would come to, the, to these centers and uh, you could be uh, in a program, you could meet other peers that have gone through it, which I think is critical for emotional and, and social support, uh, mental, mental support. Um, and, uh, and it would be multidisciplinary and you'd have access to physiotherapy to help you um, progress your exercise. Um, tolerance and you would have access to occupational therapy for things like energy conservation and, and speech language pathology if you needed it for swallowing difficulties like like Eric um, has had mentioned and um, and in uh, psychological support as well um, I think you know that would be the ideal but I, I'm not sure that will it will ever you know I'm not sure that it's it's possible um, to have those kinds of in-person programs in the current context. Maybe it will be in the future. Um, and but I think you know programs that are out in the community, meeting people where they are, would be ideal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Eric, what about you? What would you like to get from a program? Um, I think Marla's pretty well covered all the points, but I. I for me, I think, like she said, the, the, I had to almost force my family doctor to get me into a cardiopulmonary testing and have my heart checked. Um, I, I kind of felt that that shouldn't be something, I, that should be automatic. Um, I almost stroked three times when I was in coma. My lungs, who knows what scarring is in there. Um, you know, I eventually got it and both have proved okay, but we don't know what the future brings. I mean. Um, my lung capacity is there, but is there scarring? Is there scarring that's going to cause other problems in five, 10 years? I don't know. Um, I, I just think it should be offered automatically uh, mm -hmm. to people that have had severe cases. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you do it, where the money comes from. That's out of my pay grade, but <laughs> <laughs> um, something needs to be done. I, I, you know, when I first came out of this, I was very hesitant to talk about it. I almost felt like you know, the leper in the, in the room, you know, and um, I got to the point though, where I see the people without masks. I see the people saying it's nothing. And I've become an advocate and I tell my story. My family tells my story. My friends tell my story yeah. and it makes people think people that never thought they'd ever had an op that it would ever happen to them. It happened to a healthy 54 year old man with no predetermined cases. We still don't know where it happened. It just happened. Um, so we just need to get it out there and listen. And Eric, what would your advice be to other people who, you know, perhaps in hospital with COVID at the moment? Have you got any sort of words of wisdom? Um, advocate for yourself, push your doctors, make them, force them to give you what you're, what you want, the test you want. Um, I don't think that you're going to get it given to you. So. 
Yeah, and you said earlier it's about them just believing you as well. That's mm-hmm. important for them to sort of agree that your symptoms are genuine. Um, yeah. That's something that you want people to to do, healthcare yeah. professionals and, you know, general people. Yeah, well, there's so many little things that, you know, that you don't even, um, ringing in the ears is prevalent now that I never had, you know, I bump my hand and I bruise, boom, in a minute, there's a big bruise there. This is all stuff I had, did not have before. Um, I can only relate it to having COVID. Um, so I, but I mentioned that to the doctors and they just look at me like, yeah, here you go again. You know, <laughs> so maybe I need a new doctor. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> and obviously we're learning so much as we go. I, I would like to think that we, we know a bit more now than when you were unwell, but yeah, there's still a lot more learning to go, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is. So I wonder, um, in terms of wrapping up, whether we just talk a little bit about terminology, because in the UK, there's a bit of a um, Twitter, not a Twitter battle, that's probably the wrong word, but um, quick Twitter discussion about the best term. So a lot of people don't like the term post-COVID because it implies that you know it happened and now you're fine so there's Mm. other terms uh, long COVID long haulers Um, just wonder whether Eric you know you have a view on on what you'd prefer to be to be called other than Eric obviously I consider myself a long hauler Uh, we're all in this for the long haul this isn't going away anytime soon Um, and with all these variants it's going to be around I mean, and, and the symptoms from it are going to be for years, I think. So I, I tend to use the term long hauler. Yeah, we have in, in the UK generally, you know, we call them long COVID clinics or long COVID rehab. Although um, I noticed I said uh, post COVID earlier in this uh, podcast. Sorry. I think I did too. I think <laughs> I did too. I think what's so important is that the, the you know the idea of the long hauler and long COVID and long tail COVID and all of that was based on patient advocacy, right? It was it was patients telling their stories, um, and and going on social media and and that that's how we even recognize that this um, exists. So I think it's really important that you know, Eric, long hauler, if that's the if yeah. that is the, the term that's preferred, then that's the term we should be using. I think it's really important that we that we go with the patient voice on this. Yeah. I think Absolutely. what we still don't know is, um, you know, what at what point, right? How many months along, like w- at what point do we consider someone, you know, a long hauler or in long COVID? Um, I don't think there's a lot of consensus on that. And we still don't know how long, you know, how long actually these these symptoms and uh, yeah. will actually last, right? So yeah, I think that kind of um, you said you're looking at people up to twelve months mm. after hospitalisation. Um, mm. So if they've still got problems at that stage, are you going to follow them up longer or we refer oh. refer them on? Um, hopefully, by that point, we'll have more programs that we can refer people to um we did we have put in funding requests uh to be able to to offer to start trials and rehabilitation approaches um we've also put in a funding request to extend our our study another year so 
we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. We'll um, once we start to look at the twelve month data, we'll have a better sense of whether or not we want to uh, follow people longer, and we might consider modifying our approach. And we have an, a, I don't know, Eric. Maybe you can comment. We have a fairly intense. We do a home visit and we do some um, a phone a phone call interview, and and you know we also want to think about burdening not overburdening um, patients for too long, but maybe we would add some kind of follow-up, a telephone follow-up, um, perhaps at 18 months um, to check in on people, depending on what we see at 12 months. Yeah, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. um, any other questions, Enya, that you wanted to raise? I think we've left no stone unturned on this one. Yeah. Oh, Maula or Eric, is there anything else you wanted to tell us about in terms of long COVID um, that we haven't covered today? Um, I don't think so. We've gone over everything pretty well. We have. In that case, I'd just like to thank you both uh, for joining us. It's been a really interesting discussion, um, particularly Eric. Thank you for sharing your experiences. Yeah. Um, no, thank you for having you know, me. We wish you well with your recovery um and also Marla um you know best of luck with your research and I really hope it it um is the driving force you want it to be in terms of improving access to rehabilitation for patients like Eric um, thanks okay. to Enya for helping um run this session and obviously thank you to the ATS pulmonary rehab mm -hmm. assembly for asking us to um record this podcast thank you Thanks very much for having us. It's been it's been great to talk to you.